Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Vibe. Today, we are talking about binge eating. And I'm really interested to dive deeper with our with our guest, I'm, I'm interviewing today, uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's a PhD, a veteran psychologist, and he was the CEO for many years uh, of a company whose clients were Fortune 500 food industry companies. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sun-Times, ABC, lots of media outlets. And I was really interested to talk to Dr. Livingston because we don't get the male perspective on binge eating and emotional eating uh, very often. And what's really interesting to me about Dr. Livingston is that, uh, you know, I've talked many times about the wounded healer concept and my own background as a psychotherapist was very informed by the fact that I feel like so many psychotherapists come to this profession to uh, heal themselves, start with, start with themselves. And so Dr. Livingston is interesting to me as a psychologist and as a expert in this, in this binge eating subject, because he had his own issues with obesity and he calls it food prison. Um, he was frustrated by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food obsessed people. And so he has spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating with work with his own patients. And he self-funded a research program with over 40,000 participants. So Dr. Livingston himself has gotten to a normal, healthy weight and a lot more lighthearted relationship with food. So welcome, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Thank you so much. I hope you'll call me Glenn. I will. That's my, I was telling you, that's my, that's my oldest little brother of my six brothers. So, um, Dr. Livingston still sounds like my dad to me. I, I come from a family of 17 therapists. So, um, I, I was not the first doctor in the family and I, I like, I like using the title when it gets me into a restaurant or something, but, um, otherwise I'm kind of just the Glenn. I love it. You come from a family of 17 therapists. Yes, and so when you say that um, we we are wounded healers, I couldn't agree more. We each and every one of us, I think, even though it was a family profession, we had to make a choice, and I think we ultimately chose it to um, heal ourselves. And it turns out that by working with other people, you really can heal, heal yourself. So I, I definitely, um, I would definitely resonate with that concept. Yeah. And I feel like it's also medical doctors and people in the physical healing profession, as well as psychology profession who are drawn to these usually specialties after medical school because of their own health challenges. And so I think, and I think it's all good. I think it actually makes us better, better healers, but it probably makes for a pretty interesting family discussion. Are you guys all always all head shrinking each other? <laughs> you know, but no, nobody agrees. What's really funny is there are there are umpteen different ways to do psychotherapy. And if you were to come to a family reunion, you would see people arguing about a case presentation and saying, no, you made the worst mistake. And it's, it's really awful. And uh, the other thing is that nobody taught any of us how to fix stuff around the house. We can all ask it how it feels, but we, we don't know how to fix it. So um, 
Very, very heavy emphasis on soul searching and an introspective life, which I wouldn't trade for the world. But sometimes I wish I were given more practical tools to get through life. Um, but it's 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 a good up program. I you know we all get the family that we get, and um, you know at at fifty three years old, I'm really happy with the family that I have. Good. Well, I one of these days I'm going to find somebody to talk about the U curve. I don't know if you've read about the U curve of happiness, where it's really documented over the course of a lifetime. They've even gone to primate studies and found this to be the case here as well. And even when you control for factors of how affluent people are and what you know race and what continent they live on, people are happiest in their fifties. Have you come across this? I think there's a book called Stumbling into Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Is that where that comes from? Well, there's a lot of different research on it. And what's so interesting to me is that every time a study shows that people hit low po- a low point in their 40s, the average uh, nader of the happiness U-curve is about age 47. People are really <laughs> struggling in their 40s because, you know, you come out all shiny into adulthood and you think everything's going to go your way. And then, you know, in your 40s, you're hitting uh, aging, dying parents, you're hitting your kids start doing weird things and they weren't the cute little cuddly people they were when they were born. And you're asking yourself, wow, is this all there is? And all these different existential things are happening at the same time that all these like life circumstances, things are happening. But then every time they do a piece of research and they discover that people in their fifties report the highest life satisfaction that they ever have. And then even higher in their sixties and people in their seventies are happier. Nobody believes it. People question it. They're like, wait, these people, they don't look good. They like have health problems. Like why on earth would they have the best satisfaction? And I just, something you said triggered me to think about that, about the U curve of happiness. There was a great article in the Atlantic about it. I want to say last month and I think it's exciting, you know, with all this focus on aging and we're not supposed to get wrinkles and we're not supposed to ever look bad and all these women doing things to ourselves to fight the aging process. It's pretty cool that we might actually be our happiest in our 50s. You know, I certainly resonate with that personally. I I spent um, most of my life up until my mid 40s, like looking for love at the bottom of a bag box or container. I was really, was really binge eating. And it was only, um, I guess it really came out of that and that I could really think more seriously about who I was and what I wanted. And, um, you know, I certainly had a midlife crisis. I, I got divorced. I changed my business. Um, but, you know, it all, all came down to understanding who I was at my core and what I wanted out of life. And um, even though my forehead is now a five head and I've, you know, got a little bit of sciatica and a couple of little aches and pains, um, it's really true. I've never been happier in my life. So... I think that's um, good news for all of us aging baby boomers. I think it is really good news. And and today we're talking about how to never binge again. It was your, your subject. It's what you chose. And I'm excited to talk about that. I Just a little side note, I went on a one-year sugar bet with my good friend Matthew um, a bunch of years ago, six or seven years ago. And I think it really challenged my own binge eating. I don't think I like sit there and eat a whole bag of chips or eat a whole, you know, quart of ice cream or whatever. But I certainly have done plenty of overeating in my life and had a really crappy diet in my 20s. But something I learned from it, um, and then you can go where you want, introduce binge eating to us. Something I learned from it that was a shock to me, my big resistance to, oh my gosh, can I really go a year and not eat any sugar was that I realized well into that year, I'm having just as much fun. 
Like life is not sweeter without um, processed sugar. And when you, when you take processed sugar out of it, like I didn't really, there's nothing else that I was really addicted to. And so I just didn't overeat. So that was, that was a big eye opener for me. Is that something you learned as you conquered your own binge eating? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I want to say a little bit more about my history and how I got to this, but, but basically part of the solution involves recognizing the twofold nature of our brains that we've, we've got our early evolutionary structures, like the, the lizard brain, which looks at things in the environment and says, eat, mate, or kill. It doesn't know love. It doesn't know, you know, long-term goals or aspirations or spirituality or, you know, community. It knows eat, mate, or kill. And that, that's the part of our brain that is targeted for addictive substances. And see, the, the, um, the supersized stimuli, the hyperpalatable concentrations of fat and starch and sugar and oil and um, excitotoxins, they have a dual effect. They, they release you know, dopamine and serotonin in the, um, in the brain and give us this sensation of pleasure, but they do it on a level that evolution never, never prepared us for because there, aren't, there weren't chocolate bars and pizza and chips and pasta in the, um, on the savanna, right? When we were evolving, we, these are recent inventions of industry and our physiology is not really prepared to deal with it. So, so what happens is our physiology, our neurology down-regulates and so the uh, everything from the taste buds on your tongue becoming much less sensitive to natural sugars to the whole dopaminergic reward system in the brain um, just not firing at a regular level to a normal stimulus. So that's why when you eat a chocolate bar every day, an apple just doesn't taste um, just doesn't taste the same. And your lizard brain will tell you that you can't live without processed sugar. Like it actually, it actually feels like a matter of survival that you can't possibly live without it. Um, because when you're in the middle of the addiction, that feels true. In order to feel normal, in order to get a normal level of pleasurable stimulation in the, in the neurological system, you really do need those, um, those supersized stimuli. But if you don't have a chocolate bar or you don't have processed sugar for a month or a year, your body will upregulate and your taste buds will be doubled in sensitivity in a month or two and your neurological system not far after that. And, um, you know, before you know it, all of a sudden you think, wow, I, I thought I couldn't live with chocolate, but I, I need that apple. I'm really, I'm really craving a banana. Um, and you're not supposed to believe me. You're not supposed to believe that that's true. Most people walk around saying, I could never give up sugar because I hate fruit and vegetables. Well, that's okay that you hate fruit and vegetables. You're supposed to hate fruit and vegetables because you're eating so much sugar. But if you stop having the sugar, your body will readjust and you will um, you will start to like fruit and vegetables again. So you won't be tortured forever. The cravings are not going to drive you crazy forever. They dissipate a lot more quickly than you think they will, especially if every time you have a craving, you redirect your body towards more natural whole foods. You, you're going to retrain your body to crave what it's supposed to crave as opposed to letting the products of industry hijack your survival drive and you know link your beliefs of what it takes to live to their products and services and you know, well, most of their, their products. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense. And you're totally singing my song. I, um, I did a 450 city speaking tour for over the course of six years. I didn't, I didn't set out to speak in 450 city as I just kept, kept going back out on the circuit. And I, and I, um, I, one of my books is called the adventures of junk food dude, and it's a children's book. And I would read to adults. I mean, my audience was, you know, 98% adults. I would read them just a few pages from the adventures of junk food dude. Um, about how you just go off of sugar for four days and that I didn't call it upregulate in this children's book, but I love your description of it. How if you go four days without sugar, something like an orange tastes so magical to you. And so I read a few pages about that. And, and Glenn, I cannot count for you how many people would talk to me afterwards, because like I said, 450 cities, I would always stay after for 90 minutes and sign books and answer people's questions. So literally thousands of people stayed after and talked to me afterwards. And I I read a few pages from that book just to highlight a point in probably a couple hundred cities. Can't count for you how many people said to me, they've never gone a day without sugar in their lives. So they're good. some people are gonna have to take your word for it until they actually put it to the test. It's the first four days that are the hard days. After that, it gets a lot easier. But most people ha- literally haven't ever done it. People have no idea that they're ninety six hours from freedom, and they a lot of people live a lifetime in a food prison, not knowing that. It's like you've you've got the key, you can open the door. Ninety six hours away. Um, I I absolutely agree, and I hear that all the time. Uh, some some people say it's seventy two. Some people say you know they can get for three days that they start to feel a lot better. Uh, my experience is it's more like like four. But ab- absolutely, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Wow, that's that's a great quote. I sat here and wrote that down and put a big circle around it. Ninety, you're ninety six hours from freedom, and yeah. You know, people don't make it or they'll go one day or they'll go two days and then they'll make jokes about how it almost killed them. I tried to get my tennis team recently to do a little three days of green smoothies only with me. And a couple of them were like, no, no, that the last time we did that almost killed me. I I can't go three whole days without Diet Coke. And then I I heard a story about one of my teammates who is a really badass tennis player, but and she's really skinny. So like a lot of times people think that somebody who's skinny is eating healthy. But um, she she was just somebody said to me she actually never went off the diet Pepsi she had green smoothies and diet Pepsi the whole three days and I I just you know I laugh about it because it's like well you don't know if you actually can get off of diet Pepsi and you don't know if you can actually go without sugar because you only did that hard part so so I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you're having the same experience with people that they they don't turn that corner where really the upregulation causes them to not be living in lizard brain. There was a series of studies in the late 50s and early 60s by some doctors named um, Milners and Olds. And these were not ethical vegan studies or anything like that, but, but they were done, where they inserted electrodes in the pleasure centers of rats' brains, and they hooked them to a lever to let the rats self-stimulate. And what they found was that the rats would self-stimulate to the exclusion of their survival needs. They'd press these buttons thousands of times a day just to get that dopaminergic kid in the brain. Um, they would, they would, starving rats would ignore their food. Nursing mother rats would ignore their pups. Rats would crawl over painful electrical grids to get to the lever and press thousands of times per day. And I think what this shows us is that when you short circuit the neurological pleasure mechanisms that evolution has provided us, the result is extreme self-neglect. And I don't think it's, you know, I did a lot of consulting for big food back in the um, 
late 80s and early 90s. And I don't think it's a far stretch to say that we're being given those pleasure buttons because the amount of money, billions of dollars go into finding the bliss point in these food-like substances. Like how much, how many calories and, um, you know, how much flavor and how much like concentrated sources of, I, I talked about this before, fat, sugar, and salt, and oil, and excitotoxins, how much can you put into, you know, the smallest space for a reasonable amount of money? And then how much money goes into packaging it to make it appear healthy? Um, and then how much money goes into advertising it to make you believe that you can't live without it? And then the addiction treatment industry says you can't live without it. You can just abstain one day at a time. Don't hope to quit. So, you know, there's this perfect storm of addictive forces in our society today. And I, I often wonder how anybody can possibly manage to eat well. I agree. And, and I think we should, I think all of us should be mad. We should be mad that, you know, you know, this as a consultant to these fortune 500 food manufacturing companies that, you know, people sit around boardrooms and create focus groups and do research to find out what the exact amount of sugar, fat, and chemi neurotoxic chemicals like monosodium glutamate should go in their product so that people eat the most. Yes, and I, I remember consulting for the a major food bar manufacturer who would sue me if I mentioned their name. Um, but I remember consulting for them and talking to the VP who told me that they they their major profitable insight was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. So they made the packaging appear healthy by making it with vibrant diversity of colors, which mimics, by the way, like if you, if you, the reason that works is because evolutionarily, we're supposed to respond to a vibrant diversity of colors because it signals a vibrant diversity of nutrients. If you have a salad with, um, you know, cabbage and lemons and greens and cherries and tomatoes and like all different colors, you're really getting a diversity of nutrients. It's not an accident that we respond to that but they were kind of faking us out, right? They took, the, they took the health out of it and they put it into the packaging instead. That thing is perfectly legal and that goes on all the time. And so I don't know if you remember the movie Network. There was a movie called Network and there was this one scene when the newscaster was trying to get the population riled up and he said, um, I want you to go up to your windows and I want you to say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it. And I actually find that... Um, that's part of overcoming overeating. See, the messages in our culture say that it's our fault, that we, ha we have a disease, um, you know, we're powerless over this, there's something sick about us. It's, very, it's a very kind of self-deprecating way to look at, look at impulse control. And I tell people that I want to help them go from shame to anger. Uh, because I think part of overcoming overeating is recognizing what's, what's happening and then really drawing lines for yourself that very clearly define what healthy eating is and isn't for you personally. Um, reclaiming your power, reclaiming your hope and enthusiasm and ability to stand apart from you know, what, um, what the industry is doing. And, and you really can. It's really possible. Um, what I, I guess I'm kind of skipping my early story, but what what we've really, what we've really found is that willpower it's not a black and white switch it's not like some people have it and some people don't it's more like gas in your tank and what wears it down is the necessity to make decisions 
day in and day out. You can only make so many good decisions over the course of the day. And I'm not just talking about food decisions, by the way. They find that um, if you ask people to do math problems, they're more likely to have trouble resisting marshmallows afterwards than if they didn't do math problems at all because they had to make exert a lot of mental energy and make decisions while they were doing math problems. Um, so one of the implications of that is that if you use rules as opposed to guidelines, a guideline is something like I avoid chocolate 90% of the time, which is you know, perfectly good guideline. It's a good North Star to shoot for. Um, nothing says you can't have chocolate once in a while. So if you avoid it 90% of the time, you'd be healthy. However, the problem with that guideline is that a guideline requires that you make a decision every time you're in front of a chocolate bar. Is this part of the 90% or is this part of the 10%? Um, you know, gee, I had chocolate yesterday. Well, it's only March. There's still 90% of the year left or 80% of the year left. And so I can kind of sort of get away with eating it again. I'll stop on April 1st, right? So your, your, your brain starts redefining things in order to, you know, make those decisions. Your, your willpower gets worn down. But if you were to say, like, I, I never eat chocolate on a weekday. I just never eat chocolate on a weekday. That's how I'm going to avoid chocolate most of the time. Well, that's very clear. 10 people that followed you around all month would know whether you were on it or you weren't. You don't have to make any decisions Monday through Friday. You've essentially said, I'm just not the kind of person who eats chocolate during the week. It's a, it's a statement of character. And people, people conduct themselves according to their character beliefs all the time without knowing it. If you go into a diner, I'll pause for a second in a minute so you can ask questions or whatnot, but if you go into a diner and you sit down at the table and there's a $20 bill on the table, which the waitress hasn't seen yet. And she says, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go get your menus. And there's no video camera. There's nobody up front. There's no window. Nobody would see it if you took the $20 bill. The vast majority of people tell me they would never do it. And I'll say, why? I'll say, well, I'm not a thief. You know, that woman worked hard for her money. And, you know, I'm just not the kind of person that would do that. So they, they've defined their character in a way which obviated them of the need to make decisions about whether or not to take the money at the table of the diner. Um, even though it would be pleasurable, even though they would benefit from it, even though nobody would know, they would know when it's not in their character. And that turns out to be the major trick that makes it possible to step outside the matrix, if you will, and see what's going on and define for yourself what role you want certain foods and food behaviors to play. Um, and I wish that someone sat down and told me that 30 years ago so I wouldn't have suffered with the things that I suffered with and almost killed myself with food. But um, I, I can't tell you how powerful that's been for myself and a lot of the people that I've, um, that I've worked with. So okay. So I think that this is interesting because you're basically saying that you have bright lines that in your integrity, in your rule system, you have these bright lines that you won't cross saying, this is what I will do. And this is what I won't do. And that those help govern your behavior. And that makes sense to me because like right now I'm actually in another sugar bet with same friend, same long time, one of my best friends, Matthew, but he didn't want to do it for a year. I would have done it for a year. But we're in a 90-day sugar bet right now. And I think we're about halfway in. I'd have to go figure out what our date is. And honestly, it's not hard for me. After I did that for a year and I had that very, very one single key learning, which is my life is not less sweet. I did not have less fun. I did not have less pleasure during that year. I just got used to it. I absolutely agree with you that 
You know, I've, I've told several people in this current 90 day sugar bet I'm in, I love it. I love being in a sugar bet. Um, if Matthew or I eats sugar, uh, unlike the one year bet where we had to pay each other $10,000 this time we have like silly things you have to do. Like he has these shock collars. And if you eat sugar, then he, the, the, then whoever eats the sugar has to wear a shock collar and the other person like, yeah, remote control shocks them for over the course of a few days. And then we have like, he, he bought some ghost pepper lollipops, ghost peppers being like the hottest pepper there is. We have some, we have some, um, toasted spiders. So he has some (laughs) dead spiders that we have to eat if we lose. Um, and we also have a can of, apparently this is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Um, silkworm larva that we have to eat a bite of it. Um, if, if we eat the sugar. And so, you know, if I feel tempted to eat the sugar, I just start thinking about, do I want to eat the sugar enough to eat a spoonful of silkworm larva and a giant dead spider? And you know, the answer is always no, but my, my buddy, Chris work says, 100% is easy. 99% is hard. And that's when, when I'm telling people about this 90 day sugar bet, I say, I love it. The reason I love it is all the, all the internal chatter is going on. Like I I'll see something that is normally something I love. Like I don't, I don't really, I'm not really controlled by sugar. Like I was for decades before that one year sugar bet was, was really pivotal for me. But, and even though most days I wouldn't eat sugar anyway, um, if I see from my old days, a brownie with ice cream, hot fudge, that would be like my kryptonite. Like that'd be like the most delicious thing I could possibly imagine. Um, if I saw that, I would just be like, oh yeah, don't look at that because like that decision's already made. Like there is no more mental, uh, you know, like screwing myself over mentally over and over and over and over again. Like you do when you sit there and debate with yourself, am I going to have a glass of wine or not going to have a glass of wine? Am I going to have that sugar? Am I not going to have that sugar? Am I going to snort that cocaine or not? Whatever, whatever a person's addiction is, it is absolutely so awesome to take it off the table. Even if it's just for a period of time like that. Sounds like you say rules are important that you have your own personal rules. Yeah. And, and what, um, what a lot of people don't understand is that the source of food obsession, the constant, you know, like in the early days, I would be sitting with a suicidal patient and being a psychologist was always most important to me. And I couldn't be 100% present because I was thinking about when can I go get pizza? Like, or when can I go get two pizzas? Um, the, the source of that, the fuel for that is the ambiguity about what kind of person you really want to be around pizza. And very often, very often, never is a lot easier than sometimes. And if pizza's a never for you, then it's not that long before all those those obsessive thoughts go away. Um, You know, when am I going to have it? How much am I going to have? How am I going to stop myself from having it? How much exercise do I have to do tomorrow to make up for it? Who's going to know? How am I going to, you know, lose the weight? Am I going to weigh myself or not? Uh, Where am I going to get it? What kind am I going to have? You know, where am I going to throw away the box so that nobody else, but all of that, all of that, it just goes away. And what you're left with is presence and mindfulness. Um, See, what's kind of interesting is I get critiqued for this method where people are telling me that, um, you know, it's kind of the opposite of mindful eating, but I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's just that the order of, of operations are a little bit different. You, you think through the rules of the road so that you know when you're following them or not. And when you're following the rules of the road, then you can be mindful when you're driving. Like if you're, 
if you're not sure if a light is red or if it's yellow and you're not sure what to do with a four-way stop, then you're much more likely to get in trouble while you're driving and you can't have that relaxed and mindful experience navigating your way through the um, through the city streets. But if you think through what intersections need a red light and what intersections need a yield sign and what intersections don't need any you know, traffic control at all so that you maximize the, the free flow of, of traffic, then, um, then that actually enhances your freedom and enhances your ability to live your life intuitively as opposed to the opposite. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird philosophy. It's a, it's a different way of looking at things in our society, which is so focused on mindfulness first. But I, I really think that discipline supports mindfulness. And um, that's, um, that's the life that I choose to lead. Well, I, I like the metaphor of you know, lanes on the freeway, because I think we need lanes. I think human beings, human brain needs lanes. Um, I need the the lines painted for me. I'm kind of a rule breaker myself. I'm not the best rule follower. If, if there's a rule ever since I was a little girl, I'd be like, well, why is there the rule? If I understand the rule, I'll follow it. If not, I'm going to break it. And so I, I think having those lanes and having them, those personal lanes that we decide on and painting the lines is, is, uh, a really important part of it. I've read a book about mindful eating years and years and years ago when those words were actually really very new. And there was something I really didn't like about this book written by two women. Can't remember their names now. And there's something I really did like about it. The thing I didn't like about it is they were like, and I, I think this is kind of what you're referring to that people don't, they want to kind of take the discipline and the rules, the rigid rules out of it, because that's what got people in trouble in the first place. And, you know, we can make a case both ways, but I'm, I'm with you. I think that my having firm rules around food is super, super helpful to me. But I, I didn't like that they said, hey, there are no bad foods. There's just, you know, you can like overeat them, but there are no bad foods. And I disagree. I think there are bad foods and I think they're foods we shouldn't eat. And just because socially it's acceptable that we're eating Cheetos doesn't mean that that's actually real food. It's actually terrible food that we really should never eat. And and maybe that maybe that offends you. And maybe Cheetos is something that you're going to let yourself eat once in a while. But there's some foods I will never eat. I will never eat pork. I will never eat processed foods. I'll never have soda. Um, I'll never eat hydrogenated fats. There's things I eat very, very rarely, like pizza. But I did like in the mindful eating book where they told me this was a really good tip for me. I don't know if this is something that you help your patients with, but and the people that you coach in your online program. But they said, if you're, you know, let's just say sitting at a table, and there's all kinds of delicious things on the table, and you know, everybody's eating and indulging, maybe it's a party really extraordinary food. And you're like, you know, you're, you know, you're pretty satisfied and you know that you don't really need any more food, but you feel this urge to keep going when you check in with yourself and you are mindful. What I've, what I've learned to do is like, give myself permission. I can have more, I can have more, but I require myself to wait five minutes. And I'll tell you what, that tip, that one thing from the book has been very, very useful to me because if I wait five minutes, I never, I never eat the thing. Yeah. Why is take, that? Take a, take a walk outside, take a breath, um, but put your fork down between bites. Th- that kind of thing works really well. Why is that? Because it gives you those microseconds that you need to wake up and remember who you are, the kind of person you want to be or that you want to become around food. It it takes you out of your lizard brain and puts you more into your like neocortex and mammalian brain where your long-term goals and aspirations and really you know, soulful connections in life live, your, your human identity. And, um, you know, then you can, then you're free to make a choice. 
then you're free to make the choice and you say, well, when I think about the future that I'm pursuing, when I think about, you know, wanting to have more energy and avoid disease and um, look better and have clearer skin and all the things that come along with taking care of yourself. Um, and, and by the way, being an example for all the other people at the table who I probably love to some degree or another. Um, and if, if, if all of them are not going to have the fate that the majority of Americans have, you know, where more than half the people are riddled with cancer or cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, or, you know, or worse, um, then somebody has to go first. Somebody has to be a leader. Someone has to lead by example and show them that it's possible to be seen and step out of the, you know, the cultural matrix with food that's killing everyone. That, that's why it is. It, it gives, you, gives you a chance to remember who you are and who you want to be around, around food. Yeah. To add to that, I think for me, I, it's a lot like those who've read my book vibe. I talk about 90 seconds to, you know, metabolize, reframe and release any emotion starts with understanding that, Hey, this emotion only lasts 90 seconds on average. Like emotions really come and go quite quickly. For me, it's also just letting that sort of hijacking of my brain or, you know, this insane craving for this food I really don't need. And I'm completely full and satisfied. I, it, it just lets that craving pass cravings being like emotions. They don't, they don't actually last that long. That's true. That's true. And mo most people spend a lifetime avoiding negative emotions, not knowing that, um, you can get through them in 90 seconds. That's, that's absolutely true. Now, now I want to read your book. <laughs> well, we can hook you up. I, I, you've, you've mentioned your early story and I feel like we glossed over that. Do you want to go back and talk a little about your early story, how you came to this point in your career, being so passionate about helping people understand what is binge eating? Like, what is it exactly? Why are so many people doing it? Anything we want to fill in there? Well, you know, I, I was, I'm six, four, I'm fairly muscular. And, um, as an adolescent, I, discovered a kind of superpower where if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And it didn't bother me. I thought it was great. I thought it was just a, you know, a lucky thing that I, that I came into in life. And, um, and I was thin and I had, you know, multiple pizzas and chocolate bars and boxes of muffins and donuts. And, um, I kind of lived to eat and I worked out to eat. But, and today they were diagnosed that as exercise bulimia because I was technically purging with all the exercise I was doing. And it was a, um, in many ways, it was a waste of life. I could have been preparing better for adulthood and accomplishing other things with my life. Not, not that I'm an underachiever by any stretch of the imagination, but, but it takes a lot of time and energy to do that. And um, as I got older and I was married and seeing patients and commuting, commuted from Long Island to the Bronx all the time. I just didn't have the time to work out. I, I would do like three times a week for half an hour instead of two and a half hours a day. And my metabolism was slowing down and I found that I was still obsessed with the food. I couldn't, I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And like I mentioned before, I'd be working with a couple after an affair or with a suicidal client. And I, I just couldn't be present because I was obsessing about the food. And that really bothered me. Um, but I unfortunately, coming from a family of psychologists, spent um, really 30 years trying to love myself thin. And I talked to psychologists, some of the best people in the country, because I, I knew them, given the family I came from. Um, I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a couple of years. I took medication with a psychiatrist. I, I tried everything. 
And I had a very soulful journey. I learned an awful lot about myself. But and some things worked a little bit, but nothing really cured the problem. Some of it made it worse. And um, eventually I did this. It was a combination of two things that really put it together. I, I decided that if these big companies were paying me all this money to do these big studies, that I should do one for myself. And so I organized a study on the internet back in the days when internet clicks were really, really cheap. This is like mid to late 90s, early 2000s. It ran for like three, four years. And um, I asked people what areas of life they were most satisfied with and least less satisfied with. And I asked a whole bunch of personality questions. And then I also asked about the particular foods that they struggled with. And I found that people whose binges started with chocolate like me, who couldn't stop eating chocolate, they tended to be more lonely or brokenhearted. Um, the other things I found were that people who were struggling with salty, crunchy things tended to be more stressed at work. And people who were struggling with soft, chewy things like pasta and bread and bagels tended to be stressed at home, which was really fascinating. And I got a lot of press for it. Um, it, didn't, it didn't fix the problem at all in me or anybody else that I worked with. I'll, I can tell you a story that illustrates why. In fact, why don't I do that? Um, so my mom's a psychotherapist, and you know, I, I was I was in a um, bad marriage at the time, and I was fairly unhappy. And so I thought, you know, being lonely or brokenhearted made sense for someone that was struggling with chocolate. And uh, I'm divorced now, but I, I I asked my mom what um, what she remembered about my history because she's a psychotherapist. What does she remember about my history that would suggest that I run to chocolate when I'm lonely or brokenhearted? And she got this horrible look on her face and she said, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, what? And she said, well, you know, when you were about one year old, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And my father, your grandfather had gone to prison and I just found out about it and I was horribly depressed because I always adored him. And I had no idea he was involved in that stuff and he was guilty, he actually did it. And so I was depressed and frightened and overwhelmed and you would cry a lot and you'd come running to me asking to be held or wanting me to make you some food. And I just didn't have it in me to do it. So a lot of the time I kept a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. Um, I'm dating myself with that brand, but a chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, go get your Bosco Glen. So when you were sad and lonely and unhappy, I'd, I pushed you right to the chocolate and you'd run to it and you'd suck on the bottle and go into a sugar coma. And if, if this were the movies, mom and I would have a good cry and a good hug. And then we would, you know, I, I would never have chocolate again, right? <laughs> I would be cured, but, but it's not what happened. We, we had a good cry and a good hug and I forgave her and she forgave me. And I, and I, um, I, I forgive myself is what I meant to say. So I was more compassionate towards myself, which is a part of, part of learning to stop overeating. You do, you do have to forgive yourself a lot more quickly than people do when they make mistakes. But I didn't stop and in some ways it got worse because although I was more compassionate towards myself about it, there was this voice in my head that said, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right, your, your mama didn't love you enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole inside of your heart. And until you find the love of your life, you're gonna have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more. And it became kind of like an excuse to do more. And I found similar things with people that were 
you know, struggling with stress at work and eating salty, crunchy things. They'd say, well, until we can get the man's boot off of our neck and go work for ourselves and have a normal work life, we're just going to have to keep on, you know, crunching those, those chips. And around the same time, I was exiting Overeaters Anonymous, which wasn't working for me. And I was um, looking at some alternative addiction treatment literature. And I ran across a guy who works mostly with um, alcoholics and drug addicts, which are black and white addictions. They're things that you can, you know, quit entirely as opposed to something you have to take out of the cage and walk around the block a couple of times a day. Um, and basically, I'm really bastardizing his paradigm, but he shifted my paradigm to let me understand that you can't love yourself out of an addiction, or a lot of people can't. Like your inner wounded child and your lizard brain are two separate things. The inner lizard brain, that thing inside you that says eat, mate, or kill, that's being targeted by all these, you know, fat cats in white suits with mustaches laughing all the way to the bank when we eat their stuff. Um, the lizard brain doesn't know love. Lizards were much more oriented towards eat, mate, or kill than caring about the other members of the tribe and, you know, connecting and cuddling and all that. Lizards don't know love. So, so what you need to do is, is capture and cage it. And it's, it's more like the attitude that an alpha wolf takes towards a challenging wolf for leadership in the pack. And that attitude is, look, step out of line and I'll kill you. Like, I'm the boss here. And if, if you, if you want to take control, there's going to be a fight and there's going to be hell to pay, right? And it, it's like capturing and caging a rabid animal. And so what I did, this kind of circles back to a lot of the things we talked about more eloquently and scientifically earlier in the, in the call, is I said, you know what? Um, I'm going to call my lizard brain my inner pig. And I, I differentiate this from real pigs in the world who are very sweet animals, but I'm going to call it my inner pig. I'm going to say that I need to make very clear lines in the sand, bright lines, like I will never have chocolate again or I'll never have chocolate during the week again. And if that's true, then chocolate is pig slop. Whatever the pig says to get me to eat pig slop is pig's wheel, for example. Hey, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean grows in a plant and therefore chocolate's a vegetable and you're supposed to have more salad. So go for it, um, which sounds crazy, you know, right now. But if you, anybody who's, made a sworn commitment to a diet on Monday morning and broke it by Monday afternoon knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I said, you know, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't, I don't need pig slop. I don't know. I don't eat it out of a pig's trough. I don't let pigs tell me what to do. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as primitive as that was, as crazy as that sounds. And I was like, I didn't want to publish this book. This, this was a journal. And I told my CEO that, um, I'm going to be the laughingstock psychologist of the world if I publish this book and get up on stage and talk about this pig inside me. Um, but that's what did it. That's what, that's, I, I needed something that aggressive to shift my paradigm from, you know, oh, poor baby, I'm craving that chocolate. I must need to love myself more to, um, you know, I don't need pig slop and I, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It, it would wake me up. It was like a jolt at the moment of impulse that would remind me who I was and what I wanted to be. And it, it wasn't perfect and it wasn't like a miracle cure, but it was the first thing that gave me a sense of power back um, when I was feeling hopeless about the whole thing. It was the first thing that made me realize that maybe I can take control and I practiced it and I kept the journal for eight years and I 
um, I kind of refine things over time and I refine the kind of rules that you made. And then I work with people's resistance to make the rules. And before you know it, I was thin before, you know, my triglycerides weren't like the national debt anymore. And, um, I'd lost 50 pounds and, um, I was feeling healthy and I, I felt like I was in control and I'd make a mistake once in a while. And, but they, they got, they got less and less and less. I felt more and more in control until eventually I said, I don't really, I don't really have to listen to this, to this pig ever again. I can just, um, I can just take control and not binge again. And, uh, that's when my CEO said, why don't you write a book? And, and I did. Yeah. I, I, uh, congratulate you on not just overcoming your tendency to overeat because when that gets programmed young, we're, we're so vulnerable. Our brains are so impressionable. We're writing fairly indelibly. We can change. We definitely can change, but it makes it much harder when you get that going very young, like you did. But I also really appreciate that you share your own, your own vulnerable story because first of all, I don't find that that's very easy for most men. I don't think it's most, I don't think it's easy for people, but it's really, you know, you've got some specific gender imperatives that are even harder to overcome. And, and I think it makes us um, more likely, not less likely to follow what you teach. I mean, for me, for sure, because I believe in the wounded healer. I believe that someone with academic knowledge is less qualified and less powerful in their teaching than someone who is both academically qualified and has uh, been to their knees personally. And you, and you have, I have, I have been to my knees. You know, when you talk about using the, um, using the, or what kind of larva or, or, or the shock colors, <laughs> all those things. Um, I, I laugh about that. But when I was at my worst, I actually went to an attorney and I told him I wanted to give him $10,000. And if I didn't weigh a certain weight in one month, that he had to donate, donate it to the Nazi party in my name. Um, and th- thank God that that guy wouldn't take, he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't do that job because otherwise I would have been a Nazi party contributor. Um, so I, I know what it's like to feel so desperate that you need some external consequence to control you because you feel like you can't control yourself. At this point, I prefer to cultivate confidence rather than fear. At this point, I I don't really feel like I need that anymore. Um, But I I was there. I mean, I was, I was desperate. I I lost three decades to this. So I don't, the more people that can help, the better I feel. Yeah. And so is it really possible to never binge again? Do you never binge or do you just binge a lot less? If that's even a fair question to ask you, because I, I can't say that I never overeat and, um, but I, I don't feel like it has me by the throat. So I named the book Never Binge Again for a very specific reason. If you look at the psychology of winners, winners visualize the goal having already happened and they purge all of the doubt and insecurity from their mind. So look at an Olympic archer, for example. They actually see the arrow going into the bullseye before they let go of the arrow. It's almost like they, they are the arrow at the moment of victory before they even make the attempt. And that, what that does is it prevents doubt and insecurity from draining their energy to accomplish the goal. Now, if they miss the bullseye, they don't get up and say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic bullseye misser and I might as well just shoot all the rest of the arrows up in the air into the audience. They get up and do it again. So they, they have an attitude of progress, not perfection after the attempt, but as they are focusing on the goal, they really commit with perfection. And it's possible to commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity at the same time. It's okay to feel a little guilt and shame if you make a mistake, but 
if you touch a hot stove, you're just supposed to figure out, well, how did I touch the hot stove and how do I avoid it again? You're not supposed to say I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher and I'm pathetic and you know, I'm horrible. And, and, it, and, and what I've discovered is that you have to present these rules to your inner pig, to your lizard brain, as if they are set in stone in the same way that you would tell a two-year-old that they can't ever cross the street without holding your hand. Never, ever, 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 even though you know in five or six years you're going to teach them to look both ways and do it by themselves. Um, and so I really was trying to swing the pendulum from this squishy idea of having a, um, a fuzzy bullseye and just doing the best you can and not really having clearly defined goals and commitments um, to understanding the dual mindset that was necessary to really improve your reading. Um, I, I don't binge anymore. I've, I've made mistakes over the years. Um, they're usually at another level, but I don't, I don't ever lose control and just feel like I can't stop eating. If I, if I make a mistake, I realize it's a mistake right, right away and I, I get right back on pretty quickly. Um, I, I stay within a, you know, like eight pound range or so, um, depending if it's winter and I'm exercising a lot or not. And sometimes I allow myself a little bit more to eat in the winter, but, but um, I don't binge. I really don't ever binge again. And I work with a lot of people who never binge again around certain key areas. Like um, someone will say they never have chocolate. I haven't had chocolate in God. I don't even know how long it's, it's gotta be three, four years now. I haven't had chocolate in the longest time. Um, and there are a lot of things that people really can say, I'm never going to do that again. And they just don't um, think about people who'd make a decision to go kosher. They decide they're not going to have pork or, you know, seafood or whatever it is. Um, and they just don't. So it's within us to do that. So what I, my argument is that we need to harness that part of ourselves, commit with, commit with perfection, but uh, forgive yourself with dignity. So. Yeah. You know, it just does not serve to beat yourself up. I'll tell you what, if I've got five pounds to lose or eight pounds to lose or whatever, I don't lose it. As long as I'm pounding on myself, criticizing myself, feeling negative. It's only when I'm like, Hey, I ate so healthy yesterday and I am feeling so good. I want to keep that going. That kind of lifting myself up and praising myself. You, you can, to more you can choose to cultivate an identity of success or you can choose to cultivate an identity of failure. And it has to do with the kind of evidence that you collect. In every binge, even the worst one, if you look at it carefully, there's some evidence of success. Maybe, you know, five cupcakes didn't turn into 15. Maybe you stopped it sooner. Maybe you got back on quicker. Maybe you learned something nutritionally because you looked something up afterwards. Whatever it is, you can collect evidence of success and choose to um, build a success identity. You... Um, also have to understand that that negative voice is the pig in and of itself, because if the pig can convince you that you're weak and pathetic, then you're going to feel like there's no point in resisting the next binge. So the, the negative voice is binge motivated. So tell us a little bit about your book, where we can get it and where we can learn more from you. Best thing to do is to go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red free bonuses section to get on the reader's list. We'll send you a free copy of either the Kindle, Nook, or PDF version. Um, if you want the physical versions, we'll show you where to get that too. More importantly, we've talked about this a lot in the abstract today, and I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions so you can hear people uh, actually going through this and reclaiming their enthusiasm and power. Um, and I created a set of food plan starter templates for whatever diet you happen to be on. So, you know, 
paleo, low-carb, vegan, macrobiotic, point counting, whatever it is, we have a set of rules that might get you started. Don't take my rules, adopt them, change them for yourself. It's really important. Otherwise, your pig will just criticize me and say they don't work. Um, but it's all on everybodygen.com. Click the big red button and you're good to go. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Robin, it was great. Enjoyed it. 